Hey everybody, Jeremy National Fire Radio back on the podcast. It's been a few days, a lot of travel in the world of National Fire Radio in the last few weeks, working on a bunch of projects, different manufacturers, and obviously the travel cuts into my time. Uh, and so that leads me to uh, making up for lost time and stacking podcasts on top of podcasts to make sure we can still get quality content out on a regular basis. So today, no exception. Chief of the Department, Matt Stiff, Princeton First Aid and Rescue Squad, a little bit different. EMS is not in my wheelhouse, but I will talk fire and I will talk rescue. And so we're going to go down that road. But I, I'm super, super interested in that concept of first aid and rescue squad, which is not the typical norm, Matt, when we're talking about, you know, metro New York, New Jersey area. Yeah, that's true. Um, but really, the, the the big thing is, you know, and you see this probably with a lot of firehouses, you've been to one firehouse you've been to a mall you know you change the names you, you have the same personalities it's no different with with first aid it's it's exactly the same thing you got the same kind of personalities the same kind of you know day-to-day -day operation the job just a little bit different so yeah i mean so here's the thing i drove an ambulance <laughs> truth be told i drove an ambulance in my volunteer days in new york state for a fire district for like two years i was cpr certified that's all you needed at the time Drove the ambulance. I always forgot I was on the duty crew. Pedro would go off and I'd be like, everybody's like, where are you? And I'm like, oh God, I forgot all about it. <laughs> but I was the worst at that, man. And I did it. I did it in a it, with a sense of just being able to help out, right? Help out oh. the fire company. They were looking for somebody. They just needed drivers. Um, I, I I like to drive, but I like to drive apparatus. <laughs> I like going to fire. So EMS was never my strong suit. However, I have such a tremendous respect for volunteers and career EMTs and paramedics that just bring so much to the table. And I often think, Matt, and, and I'd love your take on this because I think this is important. I feel that EMS doesn't get the respect that it deserves um, across all the boards. It's usually police, fire, and EMS. Um, and I, I think that that is a way that we really, I don't know, push down the abilities of those that are, that are passionate about EMS. Um, you know, and so there are people that that provide EMS uh, work it as a career, not just, you know, not just as a job or not just a stepping stone to get to the fire department, if you will. But it's a career for them. It is for you, right? Yep, absolutely. And it, it's that's a really good point because, you know, EMS and we we make this joke kind of of ourselves that EMS is the, the redheaded stepchild of right. emergency services. So it's it's that third branch that's usually just kind of forgotten about. It's. You no, know, police does their job. Fire does their job. Oh, yeah, and then eventually someone takes the person to the hospital if they need to go to the hospital. But that's that's that other thing. Um, and I think what kind of makes us unique is that we tie in that. You know, we yeah, we do the first aid part. We we're the you know emergency medical service, but we also have the rescue component. So that kind of you know for us bridges that gap at least with the rest of emergency services that we're providing the rescue service that kind of ties us to fire a little bit. And, you know, that was, you know, what gave us our start. And that was this, the same with, you know, so many departments, you know, back when this all got started is, you know, we need somebody to get this sick or injured person to the hospital. Who are we going to look to do that? And we'll, you know, we, we tap the fire departments and, you know, hey, you got somebody that can drive the ambulance. And you made that joke of like, yeah, you know, I'm a firefighter, but. Yeah. Right. Hey, you need help driving the ambulance? Yeah, sure. right, you know, right. Like I can drive it. I can drive a fire truck. Sure. You know, That's right. Stick me in. Like. And that's that's really how so much of EMS got its start of, 
you know, branching out of the, the fire service. And, well, that's, you know, that's what it was, right? Communities needed the fire department, right? They needed law enforcement and they needed fire protection and, and personal care was not um, as important as it is today. Uh, back in, in the yesterday, it was, they threw somebody in a car and took them to the, to the hospital. And, and so, you know, back in the, I think it was probably what the fifties is when EMS started to take shape. A lot of volunteer fire companies, um, rolled out an EMS side of them. And then, which, and then, which I think I know, like in my area per se, the vol the, the ambulance corps was started. The EMS division was started as a sense or part of the fire department, which then spun off into its own entity. Yep. And, you know, I, I don't want it to, to come off the, a bad way, but EMS in general, like, and we, again, we, we joke with ourselves and it's that, that internal, you know, ball busting that we do that, you know, again, we're no different than a fire department or, you know, police, we ball busting is what the, what is yeah, what makes right. the, the day go by. Sure. Um, and we always joke all the time though. Yeah. We're the, we're the glorified ambulance drivers of, you know, that's, that's how it started is you, there was no treatment per se going right. on. It's, you got called transport. to somebody's house and you drove as fast as you could and you got them to someone that actually knew what they were doing. Cause you know, in the beginning it was, we just drive an ambulance. That's, that's it. You yeah. get, there's no certifications, qualification. Like, yeah, you showed up on a fire truck and they, Hey, I need you to drive the ambulance. Okie dokie. Off we yeah. go. And then, and then the popularity of shows like emergency, right? I mean, you know, obviously it was a little before my time. I'm 46 you know, I grew up in the in the, you know, 80s, you know, 80s and 90s, but 60s and 70s emergency hit the West Coast being progressive in their street care that they offered. And I know emergency had a huge impact on emergency medicine across the country. Yeah. And it's kind of funny if you watch the the progression of what the media and what, you know, Hollywood does with EMS is you take a show like that, which was you know, pretty factual, you know, yeah. on today's comparison. And then you, you watch some of these shows and like, I, I watch them. I watch the Chicago fire, Chicago med, all that stuff. And you see people out in the field, you know, more or less doing surgery. Like, yeah, that's, that's not really what we do. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's come a long way from the days of just, yeah, we drive the ambulance to the hospital. Um, and really in the, just the last 10 years, um, as far as New Jersey is concerned, we've gone leaps and bounds um, as far as what we're actually doing in the field uh, versus just, you know, being that, you know, glorified taxi with flashing lights on it. Um, you know, the, the level of care that we can do in the field now between, you know, the basic life support, which is your normal ambulances, and then your your paramedics coming out of the hospitals and stuff. I mean, we're really bringing an emergency room, you know, to your house and the, the care that you can get on the street now in, you know, the difference in the past 10, 15 years is insane. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to pretend to know, but I mean, you have to believe that that statistics are, are in our favor today more than ever when it comes to street level care and getting you to the ER in a timely fashion with the care that you need beginning from the second you drop, you know, and I think it's probably yeah. looking at statistics is what, what does it is, you know, how many people are, or, you know, you call 911 and you're dying where you called because you're not getting care out there. And you you have the docs that are looking like, hey, if we, you know, made that, you know, if we stopped that person from bleeding, you know, 15 minutes earlier, we could have easily saved their life. And, yeah. you know, that's what, you know, makes all this change that starts to, to stop the bleed. It gets the, you know, the, the stroke medications out in the field and it gets that care 
out on the street where it needs to be. You know, I wonder too, like, I'm just starting to put this all together as we talk, right? Cause I don't, I don't put a lot of thought to it, to be honest with you. I take EMS for granted. I know the system is taxed. I know it's struggling and it has its struggles, but so does the fire service. Right. But I'm thinking from a public awareness standpoint, from the conversation we're having right now, I think about everywhere you go, there's a defibrillator, right? Most, those departments now run Lucas's, right? So like, you know, to guarantee the best performance in, in, you know, CPR care, right? Like these are, these are tools and equipment that are more readily available today than ever before. Absolutely. I mean, you again, look back at the fire service and the idea of having a fire extinguisher in your house. Where did that come from? You know, hey, if I have a little stove fire and I can put a dry cam on it and knock it down real quick, my house won't catch on fire. For sure. And, you know, the same thing with, with EMS. The, the studies show if you get good quality compression started and early AV, you're going to save lives. Yeah. And I, I wonder, too, to take it to the next level, right, is that we're we're making people more aware. But the crazy world in which we live today, too, with, you know, more... Um, situational awareness, active shooters, situations that are happening in malls and schools and, you know, places of gathering churches and houses of worship, things like that. Like now more than ever, we need people to be more dialed in with self-care and the care of those around them to have some basic first aid skills and have some abilities to help. I mean, even when it comes to just knowledge of a tourniquet, like I remember years and years ago, the conversation was you don't want to apply a tourniquet, right? There was yeah. there was like this taboo about tourniquets, and now people carry them in their purses or on their being. Yeah, it was it was this whole this whole thing of like, oh, if I put a tourniquet on, they're gonna have to cut your arm off. And yeah, then right. You, you, it's the worst thing you can do, and it's like, do you want to be dead? <laughs> like it's and the you know obviously the the care is increased so that you know they stop that bleeding and they can restore circulation, and they're not gonna have that necrotic tissue and stuff and. You know, obviously the hospital-based care is better, yeah. but you know the blood's got to go round and round. And if it's you know squirting out, it's not doing you any good. So getting that initial stopping the bleed training out in the public, and that's been something that we've been pushing for our community education of just yes, hey, the you know couple things you can do to make a huge difference. You know the hands-only CPR. You know being able to just do quality compressions or do the best quality that you can do. Um, cause a lot of people were scared, like, Hey, you know, I don't have a mask or I don't have a, a, a bag valve mask to be able to do the ventilations. And they said, all right, fine. Don't do that part. Just doing the compressions is going to save lives. And, you know, same with the stop the bleed, you know, Hey, you can take your belt off and you can have a readily accessible tourniquet and you know, stop that bleed from happening. You're going to save lives. I would, I would love to see, I know, I believe my kids in high school through health class have taken CPR, I think. I'm going to ask them today when, when they get home from school. Um, but do you know, is that, a, that's not a standard course though. Is it through like high school education? It, it depends on the state. A, a okay. lot of states and a lot of curriculum is really pushing that basic first aid and CPR. Um, again, trying to get it at an early age in, in the high schools. Um, I think even going back to my high school's day, I think we did basic CPR in junior year health class, something like that. I don't remember doing it. I never did it in high school. Yeah, I think if memory serves, I think that was a big push when I was in high school to start bringing that into the schools um, to start it earlier. Well, I'd love to see it. You know, if it's not being done in, in New Jersey, at least where we are. I would love to see it happen for sure. And if anything, they should take it to the next step and talk about tourniquets. They should talk about stop the bleed, right? These are things that 
potentially now more than ever might be, I don't know, uh, something that you might want to have in your back pocket because God only knows, man, we are a, a stone's throw away from New York City skyline, but that doesn't even matter anymore. Yeah, and, and nothing, you know, nothing is simple. So, yeah. you know, the the kind of the joke of the fact of like, yeah, I'm not in the office today. And the reason I'm not in the office today is I, I spent my whole weekend working. Um, yes. And really what that ended up being is, you know, we had uh, football games this weekend. So we had a, a university football game. And it's not just a, all right, we'll, we'll send our ambulance to a football game now, is we need to have a command post set up and we need to be ready to, uh, you know, make command level decisions on a, on a almost day-to-day -day operation now of what happens if we have protesters, what happens if we have some sort of, you know, mass shooting or we have a, a mass casualty incident. And we need to have, you know, things in place to make these you know, command level decisions on what used to just be like, hey, I'm going to go watch a football game with the ambulance yeah. for a day. Yeah. And now everything is blown into these these much larger operations because of the world we live in. So Princeton, it should be said, right, for anybody that's listening, Princeton is Princeton University. I mean, it's a prestigious Ivy League school. Um, it has a tremendous draw, but it also has a, um, a, a target on it as well for being such a high profile school, right? So absolutely, and then the Princeton First Aid and Rescue Squad. You guys are based off campus. You're a you're a municipal entity, and it's a combination department, right, Chief? Yeah. So we are. We're technically speaking, we're a, we're a nonprofit, independent organization. So we're not okay. you know directly linked to the municipality like you know police and fire are. Um, but we serve the Princeton community as well as the university, uh, providing that first aid and rescue services. And we do so in a uh, accommodation department uh, format. So we have career staff, we have per diems, and then we still have a large number of volunteers, both of uh, town residents. And then we recruit heavily from Princeton University and get a lot of university students that are you know, looking to go into you know medicine as their career. You know, you know, this is their first taste of doing you know emergency medicine or doing anything in the medical field altogether. Um, and we pick up a lot of people that are going, you know, the pre-med route um, that, you know, get their start doing EMT with us. What a what a great opportunity to recognize that, right? On both from the from the university's perspective and then from you guys to have, I mean, how many students uh, round roundabout approximately? How many students are, are in Princeton? So that's that's the other big thing for us is that their undergrad uh, population right. has just blown up. So they, you know, have really been pushing the last two years, especially to really grow that undergrad population because, you know, it is, it is an Ivy League school. It is, does have that, you know, prestige level of, you sure. know, they don't have, you know, the biggest classes, um, but they've really grown their programs um, to, to just, you know, almost double the size of our undergrad population in the past two years. And post-COVID, you know, we are just looking at huge increases in students. Um, and, you know, it's a great opportunity for us to, you know, tap those people that are interested in doing, you know, medical stuff of like, hey, you know, you've never seen blood before, you know, this is a good opportunity to, you know, start <laughs> yeah. doing patient care before you take any other, you know, steps towards being a doctor or, you know, further training of, you know, this is a great place to start. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, and I can't, I can't encourage that even more than, than I can. I mean, you you have this 
unbelievable thousands and thousands of students that are within your zip code to impress upon them to come and volunteer and join. And if it's pre-med, great. We're going to give you that exposure you need before you even step foot into a classroom. On the other end, if it's somebody that's looking back to give to the community, join an organization, do something more, you have this unbelievable you know, amount of people that are just there that all you have to do is go market to and impress upon them the service, you know, the service that they could provide the community in which they live. Man, what a what a great recipe there. And I think more organizations need to lean on colleges and universities to help support their mission. Yeah, and it's and it's funny because like in our industry, you have that stereotypical of like, well, you know, I grew up in the fire industry. You know, I was riding a fire truck when I was six months old because my, you know, my father and their father. And, you know, you've got that legacy, you know, firefighter. Um, I'm a good example of not that. So mm. like I was. My my kind of tie to emergency services was, you know, kind of what you were saying, you know, I'm coming into the end of my high school days, I have no clue what I want to do in life. Not a clue. You know, it's you now I'm a, I'm a senior in high school. Not really, you know, I'm in, in my days and it's probably was the same with you. Like you have to go to college, you know, college is the only path. And sure. we'll talk about, you know, that's, that's what killed trades and, you know, put us in the predicament we are right now. Oh, yeah. But that, that was, you know, that was my life, you know, my, my childhood is you need to go to college and what am I going to go to college for? I have no clue what I want to do. And, you know, what got me involved in, you know, doing, you know, EMS and stuff was kind of a complete fluke of we had, we ran a, um, a drunk driving simulation uh, right before prom, which I know a, a number of high schools do. Crash was, a couple of cars on the football field, right? Everybody's sitting in the bleachers. Yep, absolutely. That's exactly it. And, I, and you know, being the kind of the jokester that I was, I'm like, this is going to be stupid. Like, this is <laughs> like, what, what's the point of this? Yeah, like, right. You're, yeah. you're going to stage some like some mock acts, like whatever. This is going to yeah, be your so best dumb. friends laying on the hood of the car, right? Another yeah, one's and then, in the grass. Yeah. And just watching this and watching this unfold. Yeah. I'm like, wow, this is this is crazy. I had no idea. And that kind of planted the seed of like, all right, you know, maybe this is something I want to do. And again, you know, tapping those people that, you know, yeah, you have, like you were saying, you've got your your pre-meds and you've got your people going into the, the medical fields that this is an, an obvious fit for. Um, but like I was, I had no, no desire to do med school. I no EMS was not even a, a thought in my mind when right. this all started. And it was really like the the rescue side is kind of my passion. Um, and, you know, watching them, you know, cut a car apart. I was like, wow, that was pretty cool. Like, how do I get involved in that? And, you know, my squad that I joined, um, you needed to have, you couldn't just join to do rescue. You had to have some sort of other background. Either you had to have a fire background or EMS. So like, hey, you know, we'd love to have you as a member. You know, what what else do you want to do with it? You have to either have fire or you have EMS. And I guess, all right, I'll, I'll guess I'll do EMS. You know, I can put a Band-Aid on somebody again, you know, simple enough right and then started going down that road and started you know dealing with you know the ems training and how that tied into rescue and it just took off yeah yeah that's cool i mean so it should be said then you guys are a first aid and rescue squad so you know i was um truth be told i was down there about a month ago a couple weeks ago with you guys um 
We were there with Heroes Next Door. Mike Borello from Heroes Next Door was there to document the building and show off on his YouTube channel. And I tagged along um, and so on. And that's where you and I had met. And um, I really enjoyed my time with you because you were super passionate about what you do there, um, the department, um, what you guys have built. Um, and then obviously being not just a, a you know, BLS uh, transport, um, but you also have the rescue component too. And this is heavy rescue. So we're talking, you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's all disciplines of rescue, right? Correct. So you're talking all technical. So trench, confined space, ropes, you know, high angle, low angle. You got swift water. I know you have boats there. You have, I mean, the list goes on and on for the rescue services that you guys provide. And it's not just for your own municipality, but it's for the surrounding area as well, correct? Correct. And, you know, that's really the that's really the thing that's, again, as everything develops, you, you can't just kind of, you know, half ass your response to stuff anymore. Mm. You know, everything's gotten more complicated. And for, you know, so many years, and we'll take, you know, trench rescue as an example, you know, the idea of, you know, hey, somebody's in a hole in the ground, you know, we'll give them a ladder and tell them to climb out of the hole in the ground. Like, that's that's simple enough. And, you know, it, that progressed from like, all right, so what if they can't you know, climb out of that hole in the ground, you know, how, how do we go in and get them? And how do we make sure that we're doing it safely? And, you know, the development of, you know, trench panels and using struts and all that yeah. stuff. And then, you know, you start getting some of these, you know, much higher level thinking people involved and all the what ifs of like, all right, you know, what is it to say that what we're doing is, is the right way of doing things? You know, let's, let's put some science to it and see what actually works. And, you know, a lot of panels are made out of like plywood and, you know, hey, this will be fine. You know, we don't have to worry about stuff. And then they did some testing to find out, hey, what's what are the actual forces we're dealing with, with, you know, different soil types and different, you know, depths and things of that nature. And like, hey, if you have something shift or, you know, something goes a little bit haywire, you're in a, a world of hurting and this is not going to work correctly. So the NFPA, you know, says, hey, hold up. We, we've got some numbers we want to throw at you that says that that's not the way we got to do things. And, you know, on the, the rescue side of things, we have to, you know, retrain and we find out that, like, hey, you know, what we thought we were doing the right way wasn't actually the right way of doing things. And constantly that's evolving. Of, well, what was that? Constantly evolving. Constantly evolving. That's the whole thing. And, like, we we add in all this equipment that we have to have these specialized trench panels that can, you know, push back the the forces that are of the soil types and, you know, the different struts that we carry and different lifting techniques. And, you know, this progresses and progresses and, you know, it's, it gets expensive with equipment. It gets expensive with training. Um, the manpower requirement gets, you know, more and more and more. And it's not something that you can just say, all right, you know, we can just have the fire company throw a ladder in the hole and, and call it a day. You have a specialized team that needs to come out. And usually it's a number of departments because of the personnel requirement. Yes, it, these these evolutions get more and more extensive. Yeah, it, it it's it's yeah. I I can't even imagine. So I mean, obviously the the funding it requires for these teams, but also the the training, but the upkeep, like that to me is the one thing that like, you know, when you when you're a firefighter, you you get your basics, you get your on the job experience, volunteer career, you get your experience on the street. And you continue in furthering your education, whether it's classroom or more hands-on, but you can build to the, the skill set that you have. But we're using that skill set more repetitively than, say, going to a trench rescue call, right? Going to a high angle call. So 
what I find what I find admirable and the way I look at specialized rescue and tech rescue guys, I give them all the credit in the world because they are constantly training and upkeeping on their skills for something that might not happen for four years. Yeah. Like, you know, if you think about that, it's, it's really a, a testament to the people that are involved in tech rescue for the amount of training and passion they have to have to put into a discipline that is not used every day, like say firefighting or, you know, BLS, ALS care. Absolutely. And, you know, some of this stuff, I mean, you could legitimately go your entire career and never use some of these skills that you right? put all of these hours into learning, but you have to be ready for it. And, you know, the craziest stuff happens. And, you know, the the world that we live in, in the constant state of, you know, job security of, of people just doing things that get them into, you know, harm's way or how we end up meeting people. Um, you got to be prepared, prepared for everything. And, you know, we, this, the simplest tasks can, you know, evolve into, you know, tech rescues and how you meet your local rescue <laughs> department. Right. Um, you know, yeah. we had a, a recent incident where we got called to a, um, a, a cemetery worker who fell into a, an open grave. Um, and that turned into a, a trench rescue. And again, like looking at that, that guy's probably dug, you know, hundreds of, of you know, coffin place. Like he's, yeah, he's done right, this holes, a million yeah. times. Yep. And, you know, it's that one time something went wrong and now you end up having a, a tech rescue and you got to make sure like there's no like, oh, you know, I haven't done this in a while. Let me let me crack the book and, you know, right? touch on my skill. Like, yeah, they don't they don't care. The public doesn't care you know, how often you do stuff. They they need they need the A team for their emergency, and there there can't be a a delay or you know I'm not sure I remember how to do this. You need to be ready to go at a moment's notice. Yeah, I, it's it's really interesting. So I mean, when you pool resources, usually a lot of the, you know, in New Jersey we have the UAC and then the USAR, right? The UAC are separate rescue companies scattered across typically the career departments. In New Jersey, they have a heavy rescue truck that have the abilities to do localized, specialized tech rescue. And then if it's a bigger situation of building collapse or much bigger or prolonged operation, they call in additional companies or maybe they deploy the whole USAR team. But you guys in Princeton, you also, there are other companies across the state that offer the disciplines that you do too. And I, I just, I'm so fascinated by that because it's such a demanding um demanding uh, craft that requires just so much, but it makes sense to me with first aid and rescue squad in the sixties and seventies, right? That's when rescue squads started becoming a thing. And it was like, kind of like how the ambulance evolved a lot of times out of the fire department, the the rescue squad would come out of the fire department too, but at sometimes it, it paralleled with the EMS side. And so to have, because when you look at what, what tech rescue looks like today, you have major cities across the country that have has tech paramedics now that are skilled in the same skill sets as the, the, the special operations guys for the fire department because they need to be right in there with them providing that patient care, right? So it just makes sense that our paramedics and, and EMTs are trained to that level as well. Absolutely, and, and that's something that really was, you know, the push started coming after the fact. So you had those those specialty rescue teams and you had to, you know, kind of stop and think of like, all right, why are we here? Like ultimately what is what is the reason that we're here is is we're treating a patient. 
Right. And if you don't have that medical background of, yeah, I can probably get you out of this hole, but if it's going to take a while and I need to be able to get in there with you and provide you that medical care while we're doing all these other things. Um, and that that's really, you know, that's the, the, the first aid part of the, you know, it's, it's a patient care driven skill doing rescue work. And we need to make sure that we have people that can provide that that patient care while doing the technical rescue or doing patient care in a technical rescue environment. Yeah, 100%. Just makes sense, right? And I think that that's important too. And it's also kind of exciting for you guys as a department because you can offer just a little bit more than just providing, you know, EMT level care, right? You guys don't run paramedics, right? Medics are still out of the hospital. Correct. Yeah, New Jersey's okay. still almost completely hospital-based ALS, um, but you see a, a little bit of overlap now, and a lot of that is you have those you know professional paramedics that you know work for a hospital service that also want to do technical rescue. Um, so you have those paramedics that are getting that cross training. Um, they're either part of a, a technical rescue task force or you know part of one of the, like the state teams, um, so that you know when they come out to you know, join. So like, we'll say, for instance, you know, our, our main purpose is if we have a, a larger scale event, you know, trench building collapse, something of that nature, we aren't replacing a state asset or one of those larger, like UASI teams is we're providing that initial care yes. until we can get one of those teams out there. Um, so we can, you know, if we, if we'll say it's a trench rescue, we carry the panels to, you know, throw them into the ground stabilize that that situation so that we can go and start providing care and if it ends up being a bigger operation we have the the foundation set so when the state task force or one of the you know the bigger UASI teams show up they can just continue to build out our process and it's not starting from scratch yeah no it makes sense 100 percent. you're the localized response those teams are going to take a little while to get there somebody's got to get in there and start providing care and it has to be done safely for sure yeah, and it, ta- it takes a while to mobilize that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. we're we're fortunate, especially now that we have the resources we have in the state. You know, we have one of the FEMA teams in in the state of New Jersey that can bring a enormous amount of resources and technical expertise right to the scene. Um, but they're coming from all over the state, right. uh, so you know, got to give them the, the time to get there. But as far as that that patient's concerned, we need to be doing something for them immediately. So we need to make sure that our training work seamlessly with the the bigger arriving units that we can do that initial first response, stabilize the scene, provide that patient care so that when those, you know, the bigger assets get there, it's not starting from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at your department, I mean, a lot of the, I'm, I'm assuming if you have pre-med students coming in or college students coming in, they're looking at, you know, typically the, the transport side, the EMT side. Uh, and then all of a sudden they walk out and they see boats and, utility trucks and a, and a full scale tandem axle, you know, heavy rescue and all these other things that you do. I got to think that that can be a little intimidating um, because most of them are probably not familiar with that. Um, and so I'm just curious how that, how that goes. Do you find that there's just an inherent interest from your members that want to pursue something more than EMT? You actually you nailed that directly on the head. There is it's for so many of, of the people that join is, you know, oh, EMS, EMS, EMS. And they they walk out of the bay and they go, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, that's the so biggest that's thing I've ever seen. Yeah, right. Yeah, and yeah. it's, you know, oh, yeah, we do technical rescue too. And it, what the hell is technical rescue? Right, right. Um, and then, you know, telling them like, hey, these are all the things that we do. 
And then it's it's immediately it's they're completely overwhelmed. It's you know that's so many skills I have to learn. It's so much stuff. But what we really try to focus on is you don't have to do everything. Right. If, you know we've got we've got people that are you know scared of heights, scared of confined spaces. You can be really good at doing vehicle rescue and want nothing to do with going into swift water, and that's perfectly fine. Sure. So we, you know we will happily take if you want to do you know, one or two of the technical rescues and not all of them, that is perfectly acceptable. You don't have to do every single technical rescue there is. We'll take whatever you're interested in. Yeah. And I think too, like you can't be an expert at everything. There's not many guys that can do everything and everything well. Right. So like find something that you're, that's the cool thing about tech rescue is like, there's so many different avenues that you can go down. And if you're, if you're a ropes guy, then put all your efforts into the ropes. Right. I mean, that's where your time should be spent because you can help better our, our situation, our position, if that's your strong suit and you go after that all in. Yeah, and it's so great to be able to, because like, it also spreads out that responsibility of, you know, you've got all these different call types that you could potentially have, you know, being able to say like, hey, that's going to be the rope guy. You know, that's the guy that's going to head up our rope team. Right. And you get that that incident where everyone's like, oh man, you know, I, I know the fundamentals, but you know, I might not be the the go-to person on this. And you got your, your guy, you know, that guy who's going to be like, all right, I got this. This is, this is what I do. I'll kind of direct you, everyone on what to do. And that's, that's how your team is made. If you have those three or four individuals that that's their, their niche and that's what they specialize in, they can direct everyone that's got like the, the basic level skills to run these massive operations um, with, you know, a couple technician level trained people. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, like you, Matt, you just said massive operation and it makes me think about, you know, all these different disciplines, they are so labor intensive, right? Whether it's a rope job or a trench job, confined space, water, whatever it is, it's typically a manpower needed all hands on deck, but we need those trained individuals there. It, it really, if you, if you watch even like the simplest evolution, We'll take a water rescue, for instance. You, you know, you've got that, you've got the one person that's going to be making that contact. They're yes. going to be going out there and making the contact to do the rescue. What there's the focus isn't on is the dozen other people that are, you know, getting the boat into position, getting the backup team ready to go, getting all the rope systems ready to go in case something goes awry. Uh, if, if you, you know, focus in on just that rescue, it looks, oh, it's pretty simple. You got, you know, one, two people doing a rescue. You zoom that out and you see the dozens of people that are involved in that. A lot of moving parts. It's it's a ton. And, you know, again, that's that evolution of, of what happens with these, you know, if with fire and rescue, you know, you need to have teams ready to go. You need to have your RIT team. And, you know, that was another concept that came into rescue that was taken from the fire service is you've got a building on fire. You've got firefighters going in fighting that fire. You need to have a team ready to go in and you know rescue your own people. That was something that wasn't in existence for rescue for the longest of times. Yeah. And you have your you have an active rescue going on that is extremely high risk. Um, you know, very few times it happens in a year or in a career. You need to have a team ready just to do a rescue of your own people in case something goes sideways. Um, so it's a concept that again, we we took off the the fire side of making sure we have backup teams in place. And, you know, when you're looking at needing, you know, four to six people actively doing a water rescue, looking to, of having a, a, a rescue team for your, your active rescuers of another four to six people, 
you're, you're now at a dozen people. And how many departments can say that on any given day, I can get a dozen trained people out on the road to do right. a rescue? Yeah. It's, it's a lot. Sure. hundred percent. But I think this goes right back to, and I wrote it down before it says everything has gotten more complicated. It really has. Like as time it, it evolves, as, as our services evolve and the, the demand from the public increases, as well as our standards increase, mm-hmm. right? You know, we're, we're putting more protections in than we ever have for our people in all disciplines, not just fire, but EMS, right? We, we provide more services to the public than we've ever provided before. I would agree with you 100%, Chief. Everything has gotten more complicated. And I want to I throw it back because what I find really interesting, as the chief of your department, you said you used to like to go to the football games to watch the game. And now watching the game is literally the last thing you get to do because everything has gotten more complicated. It's, it's crazy. And, and for us in Princeton, you know, we've, we've gotten the opportunity to work with our mutual aid partners with, you know, police, fire and OEM to really kind of all, you know, take a step back and look at what we're trying to accomplish. And instead of just, you know, all right, EMS is going to do our thing. You know, we're going to provide you an ambulance. And if you need that ambulance, it's there. You know, it's, it's much more than that right now. Sure. We need to be able to, you know, operate of, you know, if police is doing something, we need to make sure EMS is ready to help them out. Or if fire is doing something, EMS needs to be ready to help them out and, and vice versa. All these teams have to be able to flex in order to help out whatever the operation might be. Um, you know, if a you know mass casualty or an active shooter situation happens, all of these departments have to be able to work together and they have to be able to, you know, turn it on instantly so if you need to have your you know hey i'm there with the ambulance and i'm watching a football game you know i might have to throw on that rtf uh vest and be able to read like i need to you know pair up with a, a firefighter and a, a police officer and make a contact team and that's you know something we have to be able to do on you know a moment's notice and that's something that you know for princeton we're we're really starting to look at our our evolutions that we do and the stuff that we do on you know an annual basis like we have a half marathon that we we did this past weekend which was you know on sunday which i had to come in for this year instead of us just doing hey we're gonna have ambulances on standby for it you know we had a whole command post set up we had you know uh, cameras tracking the where the police officers were we knew where racers were going you know a fire call came in in the middle of it and we were able to pull you know, where the, where the police officers were to help get the, the fire trucks in place. And, you know, having all of those resources at a command post where we can just, hey, this has now become a fire incident. We can flex in that direction or, oh, it's a police incident. We can flex in that direction. It becomes a whole lot more than just a single department doing a single purpose. Well, I think that's the, you know, that is if 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 ever there is an upside to any of these, you know, awful situations that have been occurring throughout our country it's made the emergency services realize how much more important it is to have that unified command and then being able to develop project or develop, uh, you know, um, ways to go about operating as one. And I think that if anything, that has become more on the forefront than ever before, just because of the fact that our resources need to operate as one in order to, you know, provide the services that need to be offered. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough in my position that I have, enough like-minded individuals that are the heads of their departments. Yeah, it's huge. It's, it makes things so much easier. 
Um, you can't be in a position where you're just going to bury your head in the sand and say, hey, you know, the industry's changing, but we're going to keep doing things the same way we've always done it just because that's the way we've always done it. You can't do that. There's there's just too much going on and there's too much at risk. And like you were saying, the the public, the demands that the public has on us as emergency services, they don't they don't care if you're a volunteer. They don't care if you're paid. They want a professional response. They want the absolute best. You know, there there is no there's no B team in in doing rescues. You know, you you have to be ready to do your absolute best performance every single day, and the the public expects that. And we need to be able to offer that any time of day for any different event for any different you know situation. And that is that is what's demanded on us these days, and we have to be able to provide it. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's just an unconditional response, right? People pick up the phone, they call for help, and they don't care what our problems are. They expect somebody to be there within four to six minutes. They expect someone to provide the medical care, put the fire out, arrest somebody, mitigate the emergency. They don't care who shows up. There is no B team. You're 100% right. Unfortunately, we have so many B teams in this, you know, in all the genres that we're, that we're talking about, police, fire, and EMS. Like there are plenty of B, C, and D rated people and, uh, and organizations. And unfortunately, though, that is where some of our black eyes come from, you know, is that we're not providing the services that we're sworn to provide in, in, a, in a way that we swear that we would provide them. Yeah, and it's real easy for us to say, you know, on, on the inside of like, oh, I would never want that person caring for my family member or for me. Right? Think and, about and, you know, that. We, we make that joke all the time. All the time. Right? Oh, God, I don't, I don't want that guy showing up at my house. And, and you know, and that's, we, again, ball busting is a part of the job. And, and we got to be able to do that. And in a lot of ways, that strives us to do better. And, you know, we improve ourselves on that. But on the flip side of you can't have that you know, be the standard because, you know, you have that B team, C team, D team person that they're the ones that end up getting in the media. And, you know, that blows up of, hey, ABC ambulance squad took 25 minutes to get to the person's house that was having a stroke. Yeah. That's now what everybody thinks of EMS. That's all things. Right. Yep. And it's it's one one bad egg ruins the whole bunch. And, you know, we as a as a profession, and again, it doesn't matter if you're paid, volunteer, part-time, it, it doesn't matter. Everyone has to hold themselves to that standard of, you know, we need to do the absolute best that we can in any circumstance. And we can't accept just saying like, oh, you know, we're just doing the best we can. Because that's we'll get not it next time. We'll do better next time. We'll work on that. Yeah, that, 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 uh, it drives me nuts. And, you know, I, that's, it's, it. it's some verbiage that, you know, I hear from some departments of, you know, we are, we're volunteers doing the best we can. No. Yeah. I, I, I cannot stand that. And it's it, just to make sure it's clear it has nothing to do with being volunteer. You know, I spent, you know, 15 years doing volunteer EMS and I treated that just as importantly as I did for my pay job. And it's, you know, you have to, it's, it's a job. It's whether you get paid for it or not, it's a job that you have to do. You know, you have to put your best foot forward and you have to, you know, have that professional response and you can't just say, well, you know, I have to get to my job today. You know, I, I just, I didn't want to come out to that call. It, it's not acceptable. I, um, I, fi I often find when I come across people that say things like that, right. That, uh, you know, we're doing the best we can. We're just, uh, we're a hundred percent volunteer. What we can only do what we can do. And 
I I get that. 100% do I get that. But man, a lot of times when you go down that road and you and you can break down that conversation with the person that says that to you, you have to ask them about what and why we're there. Like, what is the actual mission, right? It's not about us. It's about the people that we swore to protect. And I think the, the, that message gets lost very often. It becomes more about us and less about them all day long. And I, I hate that, like, them thing. Like, I don't, I don't use that a lot. I just used it now instead of mission or whatever. But there is something to it, right? Is like we are too focused today on ourselves and not enough for the other people that we're sworn to protect. And so we get it gets gray. It gets muddy. We lose our focus as to what our main mission is. And I think that those are the people that say things like that. But when you break down what the conversation truly is and that, listen, guys, we have a job to do. We have a job to do regardless of who we are or what we're made up of or how many volunteers we have or how many career staff we have. Right. Cause it can go that way too. Right. Hey, we only have two career guys on around the clock. Like a lot of municipalities only have a couple of people that staff. And so they're spread thin. They could be on another call and there's supposed to be somewhere else. This is where departments have to have real conversations, though, with the public and understand what the expectations of the public are and then let people know what the expectation of delivery of services is. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you can't get blood from a stone. And so, like, if you're tasked to do more, do more, do more, we need more, we need better. If you're not providing us those tools, then we have to at least put you on notice that you're not providing those tools for us to be able to do the job we're sworn to protect. But we also can't kid ourselves. And I think a lot of times we like to we like to bury our heads in the sand and pretend that we don't have an issue or we go, that was a close one. You know, it's going to happen one day, but not today. You know, Yep that that is so true. And it's you have to you have to look in the mirror at the end of the day and be like, all right, yeah, we might have avoided something here, but that's that's saying we got a problem. And wherever that conversation has to take place, and even if if it's got to be at a uh, a municipal meeting where you're meeting with, you know, the the council and your mayor and saying, hey, you know, we are we've been providing this service for X number of years and we've been doing that, you know, with with no issues. And we realize that we're getting stretched. We we can't answer all of our assignments now. You know, our volumes increase, whatever the circumstances are, you need to be able to have that honest conversation of, all right, we need to look at what could possibly happen. And if we're able to answer that call or how we're going to handle if that call comes in. A lot of times we don't want to show our deficiencies, right? We don't want to show people that we're we're not capable or we can't handle it because people are more worried about, oh my God, they might cut our funding for equipment or we don't have enough people or they're going to buy us a new truck. Like all this bullshit that literally in my world I could care less about, right? Because ultimately what I'm figuring out and what I've come to figure out over all these years is that without people, we got nothing, yep. right? We need good, solid, trained people and they could ride the crappiest fire truck and have the biggest piece of shit equipment cachet at their fingertips and they'll still get the job done because they're good solid resourceful people we can't lose focus of we need people yep it's such such a huge thing and you know you i'm i'm very fortunate in the position that i'm in um in my department that we have phenomenal equipment you know you you got you got to come out and see our first rescue truck our ambulance our station we have phenomenal stuff at the end of the day, if I don't have the people to put on those trucks, 
yeah, they look fantastic sitting in my bay doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. That that doesn't do anything. That doesn't right. do the job. So it comes right. down to people. If I don't have people to put in the seats and I don't have, you know, the the quality individuals that can give that level of care in whatever jobs they're they're asked to do, it doesn't matter what the trucks look like. You're a busy EMS shop. I saw it firsthand. You got four transport units that I saw. You probably have even more than that. You got all your rescue equipment. You got your specialized tech trucks and all that other stuff too. I mean, this is, and then it, you're a, a combination department. You're a career chief. You have career staff. You have per diem. You have volunteers. You have a lot to juggle. And you even said that it looks like there might be even a chance of being putting more people on because of the need for coverage and growth. Yeah, and it's it's crazy. You know, COVID was COVID was some tough years, and you know, it it really brought to light how stretched out and, you know, it, it couldn't be a, a more perfect example of what you said of like, yeah, we've never had to deal with that. So we're fine. We've never had call volumes like we had then. We never had the the draw on the system. And, you know, EMS was always just kind of floating around in the background. And then something like COVID hit where you have, you know, EMS is in the, in the, the spotlight of, yes. oh, hey, guess what? We've been here the whole time. Nobody yeah, really you no longer. No, yep. Yep. And that, and that was huge. I mean, we were fortunate that our volume during COVID, we actually were one of the departments that it kind of dropped off uh, being a college town, you know, the university closed yeah. or the population in town reduced. Um, but then, you know, post COVID our numbers just absolutely skyrocketed. Um, you know, everyone's coming back out and doing stuff. The university's back in session. They grew their undergrad program. They've got more students coming. Um, just people are using EMS as a primary source of medical care now. Um, and our, our call volume is, is insane. So we had to look at, you know, what our response is, what our staffing is, and we had to bring in more, uh, staff to be able to answer these calls. And, you know, we can't just be like, well, you know, the call volume went up, but it is what it is. And, you know, maybe we'll handle it. Maybe we won't like that's, that's not acceptable. And, you know, in our, in our situation, we had to go to the municipality and say, hey, our demand is, is increasing you know, and we have to look for getting additional support to, you know, kind of bridge that gap uh, on the EMS side of things. So much of our of our funding is through billing insurance. And you look at what we get paid for doing a, a, an ambulance transport now, it is, you know, pennies on the dollar of what it used to be. So when you're relying on that as almost your sole supply of funding, you have to look at other places. So in, in our case, you know, we are not a municipally uh, supported department. We yeah. don't get any money from our municipality. And a lot of people, when they find out about that, they're like, well, how is that even possible? Yeah, I was shocked by that, to be honest. Yeah, and it's, that's, that's how it is. And, and really, the, the history behind that is when we started billing, you know, we were getting enough income that that supported our operation and now with the increase of the volume the decrease in the funding we're getting from it we had to go back to the municipality and say listen we proudly support this municipality and we provide you this service but we need support in order to continue to grow our service so that we don't end up in a situation where people are calling and we don't have an ambulance to send them that, you know, being self-sufficient these days is becoming harder and harder. There's a lot of places in this country where there's private fire companies, private EMS agencies that rely solely on donations, mm -hmm. billing out for their services. They're not supported by the municipality in which they serve. 
And I think the public doesn't, a lot of the public doesn't even understand that or care to understand about that, but it makes a difference when a municipality, you know, promise it, you know, the municipality have, they have obligations. And, and one of those obligations is to provide public safety to the residents, right? They pay taxes. Now, however, that tax setup is, whether it's a district and you're paying a fire tax to the district, or if it's a municipality, it's part of your property tax, whatever that is, people where they live have an expectation of public safety. And we have to make sure that that's fairly represented across the board for all agencies, not just police. Yep. Yeah. Could not agree more. And I think, like you were saying, that that's the general public doesn't know, no. or in a lot of cases, they don't care to know mm-hmm. that you know this is how your nine one one call gets answered, and this is how the the funding gets broken down. They call nine one one for a problem. They expect yeah, it to be fixed. They, they don't. don't they don't care. They, they don't remember they don't care that fun drive letter that came in the mail twice this year that they threw in the garbage. They don't. That doesn't matter to them. It yep. doesn't. Nor does it matter to us, right? Like at the end of the day, it should be said. Like we're not judging based upon like look at now. Maybe some parts of the country they're looking at their fund drive spreadsheet going, Mister Mrs Jones didn't give this year. I don't know. I'm you hear stories about that from years yep. ago. I don't know if that still stays true today or not. You know, but the majority of us don't care. It's a it's a service we provide regardless of who you are. It's humanity, man. It is it is providing a service to people. I wanted to ask you, though, with all of that, right? Morale, like just you bringing in people. Now, I know you have, you know, through conversation when I was there, you guys do something that was really interesting to me. And I, I, I thought it was great. I want to share it on the podcast because I think it's a great opportunity for other departments that have not ter- not a tremendous turnover rate, but I'm not saying you do, but you have some members joined or there for a little while and then they it's not for them and they leave. But you also have a lot of people that are working different tours, different shifts, and they don't get to know each other until maybe something big happens and all of a sudden they're all showing up. You guys had a board with like tags on it, right? Everybody's accountability tags, but then there's a board next to it that had everybody's photo mm-hmm. with their name. I love that idea because I can't tell you how many times there's a new kid in the my firehouse that I'm like, who are you? Where, where, where did you come from? Right? Like, and then you introduce yourself to them and you get to know them. But if there was, I, I thought it was a great idea, Matt, just run that past me, like where that idea came from. So, you know, it's, it, it comes from a lot of different places. Um, you know, the, the board kind of gives us an idea of just, you know, it's the who's who. And, you know, it's important for us when we bring in new members that they know, you know, the leadership of the organization. They know yes. basically, who do I bring my problems to? Um, so, you know, it it's as simple as, you know, these are the the leaders of the organization. Of, if you have an issue, that's who you can go to. But that's not it. You know, these are also the other members that have other, you know, jobs in the organization. So we, you know, add in our, you know, the person that does our uniforms, the person that does our bookkeeping. Yes. Um, and it just kind of grew and grew from there of, you know, and these are your your crew chiefs. So if you are riding on a, you know, you you run on a on a shift night, like this is the person you're going to. And that's going to be the one that runs the crew. And then, you know, these are our new junior members. And, you know, it's important for these people to feel like they're included. And you you join the organization, you you get your your photo up on the wall. And, you know, for you know, anyone from the the chief of the department to it's your first shift. Everyone's face is on that wall. You have an opportunity to see who all the members are. You know where they're at in their training progress. You know, you know what positions they have, what certifications they have, um, and it kind of creates that you know family 
you know, mentality of like, all right, we can all kind of know who each other are. We, you know, it's not that, you know, we're going out on a tech rescue. And the first time that I see your face or learn your name is when, oh, you're, you're manning the rope that I'm going over the edge on. It's like, yeah, right. what was your name, by the way, before yeah, you right. dropping off the side of the building? Right. And that was always a, you know, a joke that, uh, you know, one of the task force leaders um, back in my home department used to say is like, I, I want to know your name before I'm putting my life in your hands. Um, and that you know, always, you know, stuck with me of like, yeah, that's a good point. You know, we rely on each other to do these jobs. We should at, at a very least know each other's names and generally know what you look like. Um, and that's really the idea behind that member board. Yeah, I, I thought it was just a great idea. Um, and in fact, like I want to I want to talk about that some more because, you know, on different things that we do, because I think it's a great opportunity to do it, especially in a, in a volunteer department where you can, you know, where people are coming in at all different times and, and, you know, you might be opposite of somebody and you never meet them or see them, but at least you can put a name, you know, a face to the name when you hear their name spoken or, you know, something like that. I just think it's a great opportunity. So yeah, really smart move, man. I like that. Talk to me too, though, the morale side. Um, You're running a first aid and rescue squad, man. Like, you know, so morale, I mean, I know in the fire service, morale takes a lot of work. It takes a, a positive culture to cultivate the next leaders and the people that want to instill as much as they, you know, value as much as they can and, and so on. So just morale. That, that is the golden word. Mm. You know, that is, that is so important in everything that we do that people feel like they're included and that what they're doing matters. Um, and it's, it's such an important part, especially with, you know, we bring people in, to the EMS side, you know, you're you're coming off the street with absolutely no training. So you're joining the organization, you're you're coming in as, you know, a third or a fourth on the ambulance, you're not directly providing that patient care, but you're learning. And your job, you know, your task is to learn. And that's hugely important. And it's not something that just should be forgotten about of like you're not contributing to the organization. No, that that's your job. And your job is to learn so that you can you know, continue this service going on for years and years and years. Cause that's, you know, it's, it's the junior or the probationary members, the cadets, you know, it's the younger people that are coming into the, the firehouse or the first aid squad that are going to continue that service. So we need to get that buy-in from them the second they walk in the door of like, yeah, you are important. And it's important that you're learning because you're going to be that senior person one of these days. And that's, that's a huge title to have. There's just something about it, man. When, when there's a, when you have a culture that, that cultivates the mutual respect across the board, regardless of title, where you take that out of the equation, right. And everybody feels their value and worth you win because everything else will fall in line. Yeah. And it's for me and, you know, I kind of pulling it from like the, the, the military stance of things. Yeah. You've got your, your chief officers, you got people that have the titles, but that most respected person is going to be that, you know, that not that senior non-commissioned officer or that, you know, that senior guy in the firehouse of like, you don't have, you don't have a title, you don't have a rank, but if, if push comes to shove and you need to go to somebody like, Hey, I, I need, I need the, your two cents on this. You have that senior person and that you don't get that with a, a rank title. You don't get that with, you know, yeah, I've been here a, a gazillion years and I've been, 
you know, salty and mad at the at the world since day one. It's that guy of like, hey, you know, I know that you know the ins and outs of this job. I'm going to you, you know, as a chief officer, I'm going to that senior person of like, listen, what do you think about this? And and that's the most critical position, I think, in any organization is, is having that, you know, the one or two senior people there, regardless of rank and title, that, you know, they know the culture and they're the ones that, that you know, that's that's what makes or breaks the department. I love it. I couldn't say it any better, man. I I just I admire those guys. I there's so many people, man. I could sit here for hours giving you a list of people that I just look at and I admire and I think they brought so much to the table and they continue to bring so much to the game and they're just just that guy. Like there's you know, there there's not, you know, their name might hold some weight around the firehouse, but outside of there nobody knows who this guy is, but man He's so good, you know, and he's the guy that we need, you know, in the fire service or the EMS side. We need those people now more than ever. Yep, it's you. You can't replace that. You 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 need that so badly, and you know you have so many. You can go like you said. Any any person that holds a title right now is going to have that. You know, those couple people that they refer to as this is the person that I learned everything from. Yes, and it's. So often it's not like, oh, well, they were the the officer of the truck. They were the, no, it's the senior guy. And it's the guy that's like, I needed to learn something. That's the guy I went to. I love it. Yeah, man. Hit it out of the park, chief. This goes quick, man. That goes quick. What's next for you? What's next for Princeton First Aid and Rescue? Anything exciting going on? Anything you can share with us? Or, or uh, I don't know, what you got? Anything else? Last we're, last words? Yeah, we're, we're growing. And, you know, we're like so many other departments, we just, we're recruiting for every one of our positions. We need volunteers. We need career staff. We need per diems. Um, we're looking to constantly, you know, increase the services we provide. Um, we we take, took on a ton of standby services this year. Uh, Princeton University has a standby for so many of their athletic events that we cover now because, you know, we got to be ready for whatever, sure. um, you know, ESPN did a great job of, of showing how important that medical coverage is uh, at sporting events. Princeton University jumped right on and said, "Yep, yeah, absolutely, we need that." So I love it. We're growing that response. Our, our EMS response needs to be there. Our rescue response needs to be there. Um, and we're just we're constantly looking for people. Well, I know you're busy, man, and I just appreciate you spending some time with me today. Just give me a little background about yourself and the department. Um, it's always fun to meet new guys. Thank you for opening your doors to us a few weeks back and, and showing us around. I still have plenty of content to share that you and I did um, on the rescue and so on, but just a great conversation, man. A little bit different than what my normal conversations are just talking about going down the EMS and rescue side, but so many similarities. Um, and in fact, you guys run fire. So it's, you know, it's uh, you're part of us and, and it's one big cohesive unit, but, I think there was a lot of great nuggets today that uh, that you brought forth and, you know, not realizing um, how things have evolved. I think yep. that, that I wrote down everything has everything has gotten more complicated. I think that's going to be the title of this episode because it just has. Yep, absolutely. And we need we need dynamic people like yourself, Chief, to uh, navigate that for us. So thank you for your time today, Matt. I appreciate you very much. Um, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for what you do and getting this stuff out in the public. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's just fun. It's just fun. It's fun to have conversation and meet new people. That's what matters to me most, man. So 
I appreciate that. So thank you, Matt. Don't go anywhere. Stay right here. I'm just going to sign off the podcast. I'm going to come right back to you, man. Cool. Everyone, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the National Fire Radio Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Do me a favor. Take this conversation. Take it back to the firehouse and talk about it. Because when we talk about the job, we're making the job better. And if you don't take it back to the firehouse, take it back to your first aid and rescue squad. Because, hey, it's part of the equation, guys. So, anyway, Chief, thank you very much for joining me, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you at the next one. Jeremy, National Fire Radio. National Fire Radio.